Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I believe in personal rights. I cannot believe that's where we are. I too can't believe that we've gotten to this point. More than one lawmaker used the phrase, I can't believe we're here during a legislative debate this week. Discussion on the floor ranged from COVID vaccines to business interests. Later, Idaho reporters will fill you in on what we might expect out of this legislative session. I'm Logan Finney, filling in for Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. The Idaho legislature focused a lot this week on what they do and don't believe around employer-employee rights. Later in the show, Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press, James Dawson of Boise State Public Radio, and Bill Spence of the Lewiston Tribune join me to discuss legislative proposals on property taxes, private militias, and much more. But first, on Thursday, Idaho's U.S. Senator Jim Risch issued a statement condemning Russian President Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Risch is the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and said, quote, anyone who is surprised by Putin's deadly attack on a sovereign nation has not been paying attention. These are the actions of a madman, end quote. Risch plans to propose a bill called the Never Yielding Europe's Territory Act, or NYET Act, that would impose sanctions on Russia and provide $500 million in foreign military financing for Ukraine. That would include $250 million in emergency funding, with $100 million for emergency lethal assistance for critical capabilities like air defense, anti-armor, and anti-ship capabilities. When the U.S. Senate reconvenes on Monday, Risch said he will do all he can to have the bill picked up by the body. Risch said, quote, Diplomacy has failed. Those of us who called for more definitive action from the Biden administration and our allies have unfortunately been proven right. We cannot afford to wait any longer. We must take more decisive action, end quote. In legislative news, on Monday, the House passed a bill from Representative Doug Okunowitz that would prohibit unaffiliated voters from choosing a political party the day of the primary election. More than 300,000 voters in Idaho are registered as unaffiliated. Unaffiliated voters can wait until Election Day to change their affiliations. All this proposal does is treat the unaffiliated voters uh, exactly the same way as the other four groups. The only difference being that now everyone will have to, will have the same deadline to change their political affiliation. So the bill's about consistency, simplification of our election laws, and fairness to say, say to the unaffiliate that you have got to sign up right now because you must know who you're going to vote for is disenfranchising them. And I, I don't believe that that's what we need to do. Um, the parties all know who they're going to vote for. I bet I could go around the room right now and everyone would tell me who they're voting for. But I don't believe these others do, and so for that I ask for your red light. If an individual is unsure about whether they align with the values of that party platform, then they may not be the right voter to be selecting the candidate to represent those values. I think it would be something that would be a little bit disenchanting for a new voter for them to show up on 
primary election day having fully understood and not realizing that there was a rule that made them declare their party a few months ago. I don't think we're creating a special class of unaffiliated voters. If somebody affiliates with political party A, B, C, or D, they've done it. They knew what they were doing. We have people who are learning. We want people to vote. We want to give people access to the ballot. The bill narrowly passed the House in a 36 to 32 vote, and it now moves to the Senate. If passed into law, that new party registration deadline would be next month on March 11th. On Tuesday, the House reviewed House Bill 581 from Representative Charlie Shepard, which would prohibit employers from discriminating against unvaccinated employees. Businesses would also be prevented from asking employees about their vaccination status. This bill ensures the individual rights of employees to not be discriminated against in the workforce because of their vaccination status in regards to COVID-19 or any other emergency use authorization vaccine. My uh, daughter is immunocompromised. My son-in-law, her husband, is in a motorized wheelchair, immunocompromised. Now, with this bill, if they want to hire somebody to come into their house and they say, you know what, we would like you to be vaccinated. Whether, whether you agree it works or doesn't agree, that's their personal right to ask. But now what you're saying is, now you are going to make my daughter a criminal and punish her with a $1,000 fine. We have churches in the state of Idaho, ladies and gentlemen, who send missionaries overseas with a requirement to be vaccinated. We have a global agricultural community, a global business community here in Idaho that does business on a worldwide basis, who require many of their employees to be vaccinated to travel. Are we going to tell them they can no longer do that? That's a commerce issue. That's a business issue from my perspective. Just because I own a business, it does not mean that I own my employees. I do not own my employees. It is a privilege to have those employees work for me, nor do I own their medical decisions. That's a decision that is between that employee and their doctor. The bill is a revived version of a proposal from Shepard during the reconvened legislative session last November. It passed the House this week in a 38 to 29 vote and moves on to the Senate. On Thursday, the House took up House Bill 658, which would allow the state to grant anonymity to suppliers who provide the Idaho Department of Correction with chemicals used in execution by lethal injection. The supplier's name would not be subject to public record nor courtroom discovery. There is a problem, however, and that is that where courts won't overturn the death penalty and legislatures will not repeal it, a new strategy has emerged in fighting the death penalty, and that is to name and shame the providers and the participants in that process. As a functional matter, a no vote on this ends the death penalty in Idaho. Only firing squad and lethal injection are in our Constitution as, as appropriate means of execution. Firing squad, in theory, could be brought back, but our current protocols are the result 
of years and years of litigation in, on both state and federal questions. And we are in a place where our procedures are, are absolutely defensible. Uh, corporations have a right not to involve themselves in these processes, and now they will have no idea if they are actually supplying these drugs um, to the suppliers or not. So with that, um, I'd ask for your red light. The government shouldn't have the right to kill people using secret means, methods, and practices. The bill passed in a 38 to 30 vote and heads to the Senate. Visit the Idaho Reports blog for more information on the bill and executions in Idaho from our producer, Ruth Brown. Joining me to discuss this week at the legislature is Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press, Bill Spence from the Lewiston Tribune, and James Dawson from Boise State Public Radio. Hey. Bill, we're going to start with you. You broke some big news on a uh, tax bill that is coming down the pipe at the legislature. Walk us through that. Yep. So the legislature's been looking at property taxes for a couple of years now, um, and kind of the where they're at, the basic issue is that uh, property taxes are driven by local budgets. The only way you significantly reduce pr local property taxes is by either cutting local government budgets or by replacing property tax with a different revenue source. So the proposal that's in the works in the legislature right now is to uh, re raise the sales tax, the state sales tax, by around 2%, from 6% to about 8% use that revenue then to uh, eliminate most local property taxes on primary residences. Uh, the only property tax that would remain on a primary residence is voter approved bonds or uh, voter approved supplemental school levies. Um, it's has the bill has not been introduced yet. Uh, they're tweaking it, um, but my guess is it'll be introduced sometime next week. Um, so a portion of the revenue is also used to increase the grocery tax credit uh, to offset the impact of that higher sales tax on food prices. So, so it ex it would exchange a higher sales tax in exchange for lowering property taxes with some other provisions in there. Correct. Um, and you said they would raise the grocery tax credit as well. There is a bill that has passed, I believe, the Senate to raise that credit by $20. What are they looking at in this bill? They're looking at a $60 increase. So uh, it would go from about, uh, for uh, people under 65, it would go from $100 a year to $160 a year. Um, and at that level, uh, uh, it offsets the uh, the six percent. Well, it, excuse me. It offsets offsets the new uh, sales tax on about two thousand dollars worth of food purchases. So, um, it, it to me, it's going to be a fascinating debate because nobody likes the idea of raising the sales tax. But this is in, I've covered the legislature fourteen years. This is the most significant uh, bill to decrease residential property tax rates that I've seen. Uh, uh, Senator Rice uh, indicated that it would probably uh, cut property taxes on primary residences by an average of about two-thirds. So. In some ways it's reminiscent of the 2006 tax shift mm -hmm. under then Governor Risch when they raised the sales tax from 5% to 6% and took the maintenance and operation 
funding for schools off of the local property tax. The problem that time was that it just came back, basically, in the form of supplemental levies that really weren't supplemental and were still paying property taxes to fund operations of schools. And Bill, I believe that your reporting showed that there are some, some safeguards against this in this proposal. Yeah, they're very aware of, of uh, the uh, subsequent uh, increase of property tax after the 2006 bill, so I think they've got some provisions to, to try to address that and keep it off of residences. They also have a portion of the, the money from the increase in sales tax would go into uh, a stabilization fund, basically a rainy day account that uh, the local governments could tap in the event that uh, the economy goes south. And that would be because the, the sales tax is a very volatile tax. It goes up and down depending on how economic times are. And that's, that's exactly the issue is that um, property tax is kind of independent independent of the economy, which for local governments is a good thing. It's a stable source of revenue for them. For property owners, it's a bad thing because if they lose their job, they still owe a certain amount of property tax. The sales tax is very subject to, to economic swing, so this stabilization fund would try to address that. And my understanding is it would be independent. It would not be subject to legislative appropriation. It would be, there would be a mechanism that specifically says, here's when that uh, money kicks in. And there are other big tax debates happening this week. I believe every single day this week in the House we have seen lawmakers attempt to pull a grocery tax repeal bill out of committee. Um, Betsy, let's start with you. Can you break down that conversation? Well, I think those debates have been getting less and less big. <laughs> As we've seen, the, basically the same thing keeps being proposed, a parliamentary maneuver to try to pull a personal bill out of the House Ways and Means Committee without a hearing, essentially, straight to the floor. and. Well, the first few times this was proposed, there were lengthy debates over it. Um, they've kind of got the hang of it now <laughs> to where the debate is getting shut down before it even starts by a non-debatable motion to cut off debate. <laughs> and so they've just kind of gone through and repeated those steps over and over repeatedly to the point that today, I believe it was the Speaker of the House said, uh, we're seeing a pattern here. <laughs> I guess this will go like it did yesterday, and sure enough, it did. And, and I believe it was 55 votes in favor out of the 70 to cut off debate, well over the two-thirds required to do that. So this is a, a tactic that earlier was successful at slowing down progress in the House really on anything, but not successful in actually accomplishing its aim in bringing those bills out. And mm -hmm. it was interesting, too, when this started about three weeks ago or so, uh, that you did have you know several Democrats uh, and more Republicans siding with um, you know the, the vote to caucus. yeah exactly to try to bring um, the grocery tax repeal bill up for a vote uh, and then several of them now have kind of moved over to the well you know this isn't going anywhere uh, and the votes to shut down that debate have just kept going up uh, since it started. Basically, I think the annoyance factor for their colleagues um, on, on the part of those who are continuing to make these motions keeps going up. But I also think it's going to be interesting uh, what happens with that vote if this new property tax bill stalls and it becomes clear that uh, we may not have any additional significant tax relief. It, uh, it, if, if we can't do it on property tax, then I'm curious whether people, whether more people are going to be willing to, to call the grocery tax credit out of committee. 
We did have uh, Democratic Representative Laura Nekachea earlier this year say if the big tax, income tax cut passed and they did something around grocery taxes, she'd eat her hat. So we'll see if that. And <laughs> she is actually one who has introduced a personal bill to repeal the grocery tax. And one day this week, we saw Representative Heather Scott, Republican from North Idaho, try to call Representative Nekochea's bill out of committee, and that one didn't go anywhere either. Uh, let's move on to another one of the bills that was moving around this week. Jimmy, you, James, you covered a uh, militia bill that has been getting a lot of attention. Can you break that down for us? Sure. So basically, this statute has been on the books for, I mean, almost 100 years, since 1927. And essentially, it would make it so groups of armed people cannot uh, form a private militia together other than the Idaho National Guard, and armed people cannot, quote, parade around any city or town, um, you know, just point blank. Essentially, a lot of uh, states around the country have similar laws to this. Um, back when, uh, as Representative John Gannon said on the floor, this was, you know, 1927, we're talking about almost in the Depression, lots of union violence, lots of um, issues with, with those sorts of labor uprisings around the country. Um, so this was part of, at least the National Guard says, they were the ones who brought the bill, that it was part of the Red Tape Reduction Act under Governor Brad Little's uh, first executive order, I believe. Uh, Generally cutting government regulations across the board wherever feasible if they're not needed, yeah. Exactly, and so they brought this bill up, the governor's office signed off on it, said, yep, let's go for it. Uh, but you have uh, you know, a pretty prominent group called the uh, Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection out of Georgetown, um, which is led by a, a pretty, um, I would say high profile former federal prosecutor who has sued militias in the past in civil court using these types of laws, basically saying, look, this isn't unconstitutional. Uh, we successfully sued this Pennsylvania militia for the 2017, their 2017 role in uh, the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, they also have other pending lawsuits around the country. And what about um, militias here in Idaho, like the Three Percenters and other groups? Mm -hmm. I mean, we've seen substantial growth in militias over the past several years. You have elected officials who say, you know, I am a member in my legislative bio, uh, specifically Representative uh, Chad Christensen, um, which it's not in there this year. It was in there uh, two years ago in the previous legislative session as a member of the Oath Keeper. Um, but, you know, so we've seen sort of, uh, you know, pushback against this statute. Uh, basically, they say, the governor's office and the Idaho National Guard say, it's not gonna change anything substantial, but it would take out a civil action that someone could bring against these militias. However, in the Constitution and other parts of state code, uh, private militias are outlawed and they are illegal. It was interesting to me that, that we didn't hear as much in the House floor debate about this as we did in the committee hearing. During the committee hearing, there were people, particularly from North Idaho, who talked about things that have happened in Idaho in the last two years, in which groups of armed people have essentially paraded up and down the main streets of their town. Um, sometimes, you know, out of a, mis a mistaken idea that they're protecting people against something that wasn't gonna happen, like a big Antifa event or something, but the Antifa we've, bus. we've essentially yeah. had three takeovers of cities in North Idaho by private armed groups with the local authorities not doing anything to stop it and a whole lot of people who, according to the testimony, were intimidated about going downtown, going to their local restaurant, people carrying, you know, 
uh, long guns around and setting them on the bar top at the local restaurant and, and you know, is this how things are supposed to work in Idaho? Is this what our laws mm -hmm. permit? And it, it certainly raises the question about what else we do have on the books and what is legal and what isn't legal. And that's all been brought up by this bill. I think perhaps the governor's office was not prepared um, for the questions that it raised in, in light of those events right here in our state in the last two years. Um, across the rotunda over in the Senate, there were a couple of loan repayment programs that were also being considered, one for rural nurses and another for rural teachers. Uh, those two bills had two very different outcomes. They certainly did. So the Rural Nurses Incentive Program, and this is certainly a time when we're hearing about a crisis in nursing in rural Idaho, was killed. And basically, senators said the price tag's just too high. Um, 25000 a year for up to three years, that's 75000 a person and only 10 people could get it. That's just too much money. Well, different fate for the Rural Educator Incentive Program. Again, it's a loan repayment program, but it's a lot less money and it's for a lot more people. In the first year, it would provide $1,500. I believe the second year is $2,500. Third year, it's $3,500. Then it goes to $4,500 and that's the end. And the point is to keep those teachers teaching in those underserved, disadvantaged, and rural schools. And this one passed. It passed 25 to 7. Um, and there has been work on some kind of incentive program for rural teachers in Idaho for years now in the legislature. I think this is the farthest I've seen it get, and I think it's got some momentum. It has bipartisan support, bipartisan sponsors, and among those debating in favor of the bill today, it's sponsored in the Senate by Senator Janie Ward Engel King, a Democrat from Boise, but among those debating in favor was Senator Stephen Thane, the Senate Education Chairman, Republican from Emmett. And then we've also got a bunch of election bills moving around that have possibly some big repercussions for uh, the spring primary that's coming up in just a couple months. Jimmy, do you want to talk about those? Sure. Which one do you want to start with? <laughs> uh, so we have a couple that passed uh, the House earlier this week. We're talking about uh, making it so anyone who's registered as an unaffiliated voter, meaning not a Democrat, not an independent, not a Republican or a libertarian uh, or a constitutionalist. And actually uh, we don't have an independent party in Idaho. Right, so, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, any of those actual parties, if you're not affiliated with any of them, you right now, as the law stands, could register as a Republican or whichever party you choose at the polls on election day. But this bill would change it so you would have to do it at the same time as the cutoff for every other party, uh, which is March 11th this year. So it's coming up here in a couple weeks, right as the filing deadline uh, is same day uh, for mm -hmm. statewide and uh, legislative offices. Uh, yeah. And, and so the issue with that, of course, is if the, the end of the filing period for candidates is the same day that unaffiliated voters have to decide whether they want to affiliate with a party, which they would have to do if they want to vote in the Republican primary on May 17th, they have to make that call before knowing who will be on the ballot. And so we heard a lot in the House debate, it had, that bill had bipartisan opposition from people saying, you know, I have voters who support me, <laughs> who are conservatives, but who are unaffiliated, who say they don't want to be a party member, they don't want a brand on their back, they don't like the part two parties in D.C. Um, but it, certainly if you look at election outcomes in Idaho, nearly a third of Idaho's current registered voters are registered as unaffiliated, but the vast majority of voters are voting Republicans. So it is possible that those are Republicans who will be turned away from voting in the Republican primary if this bill becomes law. And there's another election bill that made it through the House related to um, ballot harvesting from Representative Mike Moyle. How about that bill? 
That's right, and and he has come back with this concept yet again. Representative Moyle says ballot harvesting, which is apparently gathering up ballots for by for partisan gain unscrupulously, has not happened in Idaho. But he wants to make sure it doesn't. His solution is to make it a crime to deliver someone else's ballot, and he softened the bill a little bit, making it only a misdemeanor in certain circumstances if you have up to six, um, but. It's a crime regardless. It would be a felony if you have more. And it's, it would be a crime if you're not a relative, a roommate of the voter. So what it doesn't include is a caregiver for a disabled person, um, a nurse for someone who's in hospice. Basically, this raised questions, and, and the Idaho Council um, on Disabilities has objected to this bill, saying it could impede the constitutional right to vote of people with disabilities. All right, we have got just about a minute left in the program. Um, Jimmy, you have been doing some coverage relating to the COVID-19 declared state of emergency this week. What have you been hearing from the governor's office? Well, the governor's office basically said, you know, we're constantly assessing the needs for Idaho from this emergency declaration, which basically frees up federal dollars and allows uh, state agencies to have powers that they don't usually have. This has been a, a rallying cry for the far right, basically saying we don't want to be under this emergency declaration. The pandemic either doesn't exist or it's not as big of a deal anymore. Uh, Governor Kate Brown in Oregon on April 1st is rescinding that state's emergency declaration. I asked Governor Little's office. Uh, they did not have an actual answer uh, as it related to setting a deadline to rescind that, uh, but that uh, emergency declaration currently has been extended constantly every 30 days. So uh, in early March, that is the next time that they could do so. And that 30-day renewal provision, I believe, was instituted under uh, some of the emergency powers bills last year, correct me if I'm wrong? Actually, I think that's always been there, but they did uh, tighten a lot of the rules under which uh, the executive branch can, can have emergency powers. All right, well, thank the, the three of you for joining me today. Betsy Russell with the Idaho Press, Bill Spence of the Lewiston Tribune, and James Dawson from Boise State Public Radio. There's always a lot to talk about at this point in the session. I appreciate all of your time. Thanks, Logan. Thank you. Thanks so much for watching, and make sure to check out this week's Idaho Reports podcast on Meta, the parent company behind Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, recently announcing its plans to build a new data center in southwestern Idaho. Boise Dev senior reporter Margaret Carmel joins me to walk us through the details of the deal and its possible impacts to the state. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you next week. presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho, by the Friends of Idaho Public Television, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.